Boat Trader, America's largest boating marketplace, offering easy financing and over 100,000 boat listings to choose from. Sell, find, and finance new or used boats on America's largest boating marketplace. Visit BoatTrader.com to get started. Whether you're just looking to stay warm during a hunt or need maximum concealment, the clothing you wear can make or break a hunt. At MidwayUSA.com, we understand hunting clothing has come a long way with more meticulously crafted camo patterns, advanced scent control technologies, and weatherproof options to withstand the elements. Hunters have to wait until their favorite season, but shouldn't wait on gear, which is why Midway USA offers super fast shipping. When you're ready for your next system, log on to MidwayUSA.com. November 8th, it was just a regular day in Tennessee, you know, we we're just hanging out and around 11 o'clock. I had talked to my mom earlier that day, and then at 11, she calls and says that our house is on fire. The house that I grew up in that she still owned, and she was in Georgia at the time. She stayed with my brother. And so I'm like, okay, do you have insurance? You know, that's like the first thing that I, I thought of was, you know, if she, if she had the insurance that, that could cover it. She said she did, so that was kind of, I was like, okay, well, I didn't think that anything of it, other than the fact that the house was on fire, I thought it was maybe an electrical issue or something, you know, it was localized to our house. But then I started seeing some Facebook posts that I didn't, I kind of breezed over at first. Then I started seeing some real serious posts of my friends doing Facebook lives or doing some kind of video or photo post of them surrounded by flame looking like it's completely pitch black out except for the flames all around them and then i realized what was going on and that was about 11 30 in the morning over in tennessee but over there you know it was people were just waking up two flames in their yard and so that fire they called it the campfire and it was moving at a rate of 80 football fields per minute this is flw tour pro miles Burgoff, and this is the tom Rowland podcast Hey everybody, welcome to the show. Today, we got a good one for you. One of my first guests ever on this podcast was my friend, Miles Berghoff. He is also the host of Sweetwater, a show that we produce, and just an all-around good guy. Miles is having an awesome year this year. He just made the FLW tour, so we're going to talk about bass fishing. And, you know, there's a lot going on with bass fishing right now. There is the traditional tours of the FLW and the BASS tour, but then there is the rise of the MLF, the Major League Fishing Tour. So I wanted to get Miles's perspective on that. And uh, so we talk about that. And also, I know that Miles has a connection to the fires in California and wanted to find out about that because I was pretty sure before this conversation that he grew up in one of the towns that was uh, hit the hardest. And, and I was right. Paradise, California. Miles has a tight connection there and some pretty good stories. So uh, give it up for Miles Berghoff. He's the host of Sweetwater and a good friend of mine, and I'm happy to have him on the show. All right, Miles, thanks for coming out and doing this, man. Since the last time that we have done a podcast, you have had a lot of changes. 
Yeah, a lot of things have changed. I, I believe that that I was one of the first for the podcast. You were. Yeah. You were definitely one of the first. Yeah. And so a lot has changed for you too. This but uh but yeah, everything's really, really exciting right now. This is really exciting times for me because a lot of things are are coming together, not only in my personal life, but in, in my career, which yeah. is really cool. What what's going on? Tell me about what you got going on. I know a little bit about what you got going on, but what what all has changed since the last time we talked? Well, I think the last time we talked, I was actually looking to move over here. And now Katie and I, you know, uh, we, we moved from, from California, Santa Cruz, here, over here to, to Tennessee. And uh, so that part of our life is, has changed everything. You know, logistically, you know, she's, she's working for a great dentist in town. And so we're, we're both just loving that move. And then right now we're, we're looking to buy a house, you know, oh, yeah? we've got the down payment to, to buy a house. So that's a really exciting time and, and kind of frustrating too. You know, we both have check, you know, boxes that we need to check and, and they may not be exactly the same. So we're kind of figuring that out, but it's still exciting nonetheless. And, and then the career working on Sweetwater season five is being shown right now, which is really exciting. And then making the FLW tour is pretty much the big thing that's happening for me right now. Yeah. And so you, you made that and then you went to your first, the first tournament Mm -hmm. and I was watching through Instagram mostly sweet and, and saw that you, you did really well in that one. What was that? What was it like to, to be fishing at that level? Well, Number one, you know, the, you're going into your your the the first event of the level of fishing that you you've been dreaming of for your entire life and and aspiring towards. You know, you know, once you get to that level, if you've you've kind of uh, tested yourself over time with that kind of uh, with competition in general, you know, you have the skill and you have uh, the mindset. But then it, there's always that that little question in the back of your head: Do I actually have what it takes? And so it could have gone, you know, all kinds of different ways, but it went really, really well. Everything kind of fit into place. I felt very comfortable out there. It was like once I caught that first big fish, the first day of the tournament, I said, this is what I'm born to do. Like, this is just, this is the same job I've done every single time. It's just as long as I don't crumple under under the pressure. And it was just good to to be able to do that and not, you know, uh, falter because of all the pressure that I was under. And where was this tournament? This was Sam Rayburn down in Texas. So how much experience do you have on that water? Zero. Zero. (laughs) (laughs) So do do you like that? I mean, that's kind of bass fishing is going to unfamiliar water and being able to perform there, right? Like, I mean, that's kind of what what a lot of people want the sport to become is, Mm -hmm. you know, you take these people and they don't know where they're going and you put them here and what happens? Like, how quickly can you learn that water? And so, I don't know, but that's what bass fishermen are really good at, especially tournament bass fishermen. Mm-hmm. So, what was it like for that particular body of water? Did When you see that, does that say, does it say to you, like, oh, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do fine here because it's got all of these things that I like? Or what was it? What yeah. was that like? Yeah, I, I think in the purest form of professional fishing, really, I, I like the idea of, of not getting a lot of information and, and just going out there and, and experiencing new waters and breaking them down as you, as you go about, uh, everything. And, and that's kind of what I excel at, you know, kind of how I train myself. I mean, you know, my background, I've, I grew up, I was born in Florida, but moved to California. That's where I grew up and we've got a place in Connecticut. So I had those two, uh, you know, parts of the country 
exact opposite ends of the country that I would kind of train and fish in each region. And then I moved back to Florida and then up to Alabama, California again, then back over here. And I've fished in so many different regions. I've never been the guy to do extremely well in one region. I'm I'm always the guy that's kind of like consistent. And so I feel like the years of me not focusing on one fishery and kind of putting myself out of a comfort zone when I feel a comfort zone, you know, starting to happen. I think that that's kind of helped me on the tour. Cause when I got to Sam Rayburn and, and saw that, you know, this, this fishery was, it was essentially eight foot high when we got there. And if you, in a lot of fisheries here in Tennessee, eight foot doesn't mean a whole lot because you have very steep shorelines. It's not very gradual at all. But when you have a very gradual sloping lake like you like Sam Rayburn that is surrounded by cypress trees and and bushes, when you have eight feet of water, that makes a tremendous difference. I mean, you can't even get to the shoreline in most areas. And sometimes it's a it's like a half a mile deep as far as, you know, forest that you can't get through. So when I got there, my lack of knowledge and experience on that lake actually played to my it played to, in my favor. Because a lot of guys were were expecting to do, you know, a certain thing. And once they got there, you know, they, they tried to beat that dead horse uh, the entire practice period and they missed the boat, you know. And for me, I like going into a lake kind of ignorant of what, what the lake generally does. Because most of the time when you have a tournament, there's some type of adverse conditions that you're going to be facing that are regular from just regular fishing. and so. Um, for me, just showing up, no, knowing the generals of the lake, but then also not knowing too much helped me kind of break down the, the lake. Hmm. It's interesting. That weakness is strength. That's that's a theme that yeah. continues to pop up, you know, that, that sometimes just exactly like what you say in so many different ways that, that your inexperience can turn out to be your greatest, your greatest asset. And if you know how to spin it like that. Yeah. Like, you know, but it's interesting that that happened to you there. So this was an interesting year for you to be making this jump Mm -hmm. to the FLW because, you know, I'm kind of an outsider in bass fishing, but I'm a fan, you know, and I I kind of follow what, what's going on over there, but not, not like a, like an insider like yourself. But so tell me about what's going on between, I mean, at, at one point it was BASS. And then there's FLW, and those two are competing, like Coke mm-hmm. and Pepsi, right? Yeah, yeah. And then there's this other organization that has kind of emerged over the last few years that really made a big splash this year, right, in Major League Fishing. Mm-hmm. So what does that landscape look like right now? It's it's volatile. <laughs> it's it's different because it's nobody knows exactly what the future is holding. Uh, right now, actually, they're holding the first MLF tournament down on Lake Toho in, in Kissimmee, Florida. And, you know, I was watching some of the, the live coverage of that because it is public information. And so I can, I can watch that. It's interesting seeing that new format. I mean. So what is the format? Explain, explain the difference so, between tra- the three different tournaments. Yeah. So traditional tournament formats really consist of five fish per day. So you have a five fish limit. You keep those fish alive. You can, you can take your smallest one when you catch a six fish and and throw it back for a larger fish as long as they're Calling. alive. Calling. That's the basic format per day. So the 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 
the total weight, your total weight of those five fish is what ranks you throughout the day. And usually they're three or four days long. The, the top tours are, are four days long, and that includes FLW and Bassmaster. But then MLF came in with a, a circuit that does no weigh-ins, no live weigh-ins. They do do a, some type of, of a live platform where they talk to pros at the end of the day, but if, from what I understand. But in general, they catch a fish as long as it's over a pound they get ranked by that fish. So it's the aggregate weight of all those fish that they catch throughout a day that are scorable bass, which is a pound or more. And they can do that. They can measure or weigh those on the boat. Yep. They, they have, they have trained marshals that have a scale that all of them are set. You know, they're all calibrated at the beginning of the day. They try to control everything. And then, you know, they, it, from what I understand, they weigh them right there on the boat and then they release them. Mm-hmm. It's a, it's a, it's a cool format. Um, of course, most of us are used to the five fish, you know, limit, which is what, I, what we do on FLW, which makes for a really exciting weigh in. And we also have a really good live platform on there too. Peyote Perriman, one of mm-hmm. our producers, he actually uh, produces that as well. But so that's kind of the differences between the three tours. And it's really interesting to see this this new format come about and a lot of the the you know the mainstays in the sport the big names in the sport you know jumped over to that so there's obviously there's something to it so i'm interested to see where it goes so in that format <clears throat> a guy could catch 10 one pound bass yeah. and he would be tied with a guy that catches one 10 pound bass exactly so it would lend itself to more action for the viewer but it would also lend itself to being fishing four smaller fish on purpose, right? Mm-hmm. In like, theory, yeah. Yeah, and then you could just, I mean, there's lots of situations, and, yeah. uh, you know, I'm not a bass fisherman like you, but I've been bass fishing a whole bunch. There's certainly lots of situations where you can choose a bait where you're going to catch a lot of small fish, or you can, you know, swing for the fence and, and fish, you know, a giant worm or, 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 you know, a bait that's purposefully too big for the small fish, yeah. and you're not going to catch them hoping that you're going to catch a big one. Yeah, yeah. And so people, do you think that the the pros that are moving over to that are really all about that format? Or it's it, there? there's like more social media, more coverage, more sponsors, more something involved in those tournaments? What What's the draw there? Is it the format or is it the something going on with outside of the tournament? I'm not 100% sure. I think it's more outside the tournament, the, more of the the outside deliverables that that they see as a value whether it's you know social media following and and just more exposure for their sponsors and they also don't have an entry fee they voted against having entry really? fees for less you know for less winnings and there's something to be said about that because you know at the end of the day if if you have a certain amount of sponsor money at the beginning of the year a lot of times you know a, a lot of that if not all of it is going towards your entry fees and so you're starting behind the eight ball, which so is a entry little bit fees, different. Entry fees on, on the other two, mm-hmm. what are they looking at? Uh, on the FLW Tour, it's $35,000 for seven tournaments. So what does that work out to? $5,000 yeah. a piece. So that's a lot, but that's kind of the traditional you know, tournament uh, format. You, know, you pay to play type thing, and they have um, paybacks that kind of represent that 
that influx of of entry fees. And how many how many people will get paid on on a tournament like that? We're paying five thousand in our tournaments. Uh, we have one hundred and seventy pros fishing, and we have sixty five uh, people getting paid at any event. So um, I think the lowest that you can get is nine thousand dollars. Oh, so okay. You're about doubling your money uh, as far as your entry fee costs. So if you have everything already covered in the beginning of the year, you're making some money. Yeah. And how many tournaments in the in the series that you're doing, how many tournaments are you doing? Seven total. Yeah. Seven tournaments. Yeah. And is that consistent with BASS? Bass does a little bit more and MLF, I think, does a lot more. A lot more. A, a lot more. So it's a lot more travel. That's why I love FLW is the fact that I've been fishing their tournaments for so long and I really like the kind of that family feel to it. They really do a good job at making you feel welcome and, and, uh, they do listen to you quite a bit. Um, so it's, I, I like FLW for, for, for those reasons. And another reason is because I don't have to be away from home for that tremendous amount of time because right. it, more and more my, my position as a, as a professional fisherman is shifting less from just trying to make it ends me in a tournament to fishing tournaments, doing the best that I possibly can, and then focusing on the social media and the and delivery of the value ads that I propose to these sponsors that I, you know, mm-hmm. that I, that I get. I would imagine more and more, just like in every business right now, that's becoming more and more a part of it is, is the, well, it always has been for bass pros and for fishing professionals but it, it you know before the age of instagram and facebook and social media it was you know sports show appearances and bass pro shops appearance or or some sort of retailer and that probably still goes on because i know you do a lot of appearances and stuff like mm-hmm. that but it seems that the social media has added a whole different twist to it yeah which i'm kind of behind the eight ball my mindset of it so it's it's something i have to learn we we were just talking before the podcast about how the things that you think would trend in social media (laughs) really don't get the traction and it's so weird and i have to revert from being a perfectionist to just being somebody that is trying to just get a genuine organic you know message out there that doesn't necessarily have like the subtitles you know what my name is and all that or you just that brushed up look to it I have to like get away from that. And that's really hard to, to stop. Yeah. It's funny. It seems like some platforms that that type of content does really well. And if you put other kind of content on there, it tanks yeah, badly. It's weird. And then you have, you know, each one of the platforms I see, you know, Facebook has it, a video that will do well on Facebook is not necessarily a video that will do well on Instagram. No. And a video that does well on YouTube is not necessarily one that does well on Facebook or Instagram. Yeah. And so each, I, I find that, you know, to, to really dial it in, you know, there may be, it may be the same video, three different presentations of that video to get the maximum views off of it. But I mean, we swing and miss all the time. Yeah. Stuff that I <laughs> stuff that I think is is going to be great, just fantastic. Yeah. And I look at it and I say, man, I could watch that all it's day incredible, long. Yeah, and it just tanks, <laughs> and it's... you just don't see it. But you know, sometimes you can you can post it later or at a different time or a different day, yeah, or next month, and it will do not just a little bit better; it'll do a whole lot better. It's almost like fishing. Yeah, it's, it really is. I mean, you can you can bring it back to to catching a fish. You know, sometimes you think that that a certain bait will work, and you don't get a sniff. But then you can 
you can throw a french fry on a hook and you know i've seen videos like that they throw a french fry on a hook and they catch a fish yeah it's it's crazy you know our expectations and and how they're not always met yeah the, something like the funny media. thing about when you bring it back to fishing is that if if you go in there with a certain expectation and it's not working and you tend to just exactly like what you were talking about when these people went to this lake that you were just recently fishing and they had expectations on mm-hmm. what was going to work and it wasn't working and they stick to it to death right yeah. like like and it's, that's it's too much you can do the same exact thing with social media you can do the same exact thing with anything where you just if if that's your expectation it's not working you know sometimes it's best to try again try try again you know but other times it's it's best to like try something else yeah (laughs) it's weird because in fishing i i've trained myself to be fluid with the conditions and the and what's happening right the you know what's happening in front of me but with social media, I'm still beating that dead horse. Mm-hmm. You know, I really do sometimes, you know, keep on doing the thing that's wrong and try to change something, uh, you know, something a little bit, but it seems like I need to, to go a different direction. And I'm getting a grasp of it, but I think that just like it is in fishing or, or any type of business, um, I think that social media is just as, it's a little bit, we tend to overthink it. And I think that it needs to be something that's really organic and you get an instinct for, for what works and what doesn't. In the last couple of years, how much have you seen your sponsor pool, the people that you're talking to, the people that you're proposing that they become a partner of yours in, the, in these tournaments? How much have you seen that change and sway towards social media in some way, shape or form? This was a really exciting year because, I mean, I'm making that huge financial jump. I mean, I'm taking a huge leap of faith, man, going to the tour because it's $35,000. I mean, I didn't have any clue where that was going to come from. And then over the years, you know, and it's a combination of all the different things that I've been part of, you know, being part of the show that you produce, Sweetwater, and just doing the things that I have been doing for a long time and learning what works and what doesn't. This year, it seemed to come together. Like I was mm-hmm. able to put those proposals together and find out what the weakness is in a in a company and what they what their needs are, and I was able to actually convey that to them. And it worked out to the point where, you know, it was at the last second, but I ended up getting twice as much sponsor backing as I had had uh, had my goal set at, right. which was unbelievable i mean it, it really is a, a, a true blessing to to be able to say that because not a lot of guys can say that but it really came down to learning you know what uh, a sponsor needs a company needs to sell product you know and sell services and some companies need uh, their needs are a little bit different like for instance i sold one package that was a non-endemic company they wouldn't benefit from social media at all but I, I threw a uh, hospitality package their way, hmm. you know, five, you know, bring your VIPs to Lake Chickamauga. I'll guide them for, you know, you, you get this many credits per year, that sort of thing. Finding out, you know, do they need to entertain people or do they need to, uh, you know, have a good social media content package? Right. That's kind of what I was able to put together this year. And so over the years, I've been trending up even when things have kind of been shaky, you know, which isn't always going to be the case. I'm going to have some down years. I mean, that's, that's a volatility of this, this sport and this industry is that you never know from year to year what it's going to be. That's why it's kind of scary home, <laughs> home buying right now. Cause it's yeah. like, it's like, we want this one house, but then it's like, 
well, this one's kind of the safety because I think we can afford this even in a lean year. Yeah. But it's different. Man, that's that's an exciting time because when you, I mean, God, I remember when we were fishing the redfish <laughs> tournaments and I was, we were, we were putting down some, it wasn't $5,000, but as I remember, it was pretty significant and we yeah. didn't have it. Yeah. That's what's significant about it. It doesn't matter. The the price doesn't matter. Yeah. What matters is, it, do you have it and how uncomfortable it's all is relative. this? <laughs> yeah, it's all relative. But we didn't we didn't have it and we took a big risk. And at the same time, I'm having babies and try, and I had bought a house. And now, you know, you're really putting something on the line when you when yeah. you pull into that tournament. Like it's it's on the line. And how do you think that affects your your preparation, your mindset as you go into these things, you know, versus just a couple of years ago where you're, you know, I don't know. I mean, you might disagree, but you're kind of a couple of years ago, it was, it was a different story for sure. You didn't have as much on the line as you do now. How How do you think that's affected your, your preparation and mindset? I honestly, it's weird. I feel more comfortable now than I ever have felt, you know, I feel, I feel like I'm in at the level that I want to be at. And now it's all up to, you know, the, like you said, the preparation and just, and just doing the job that I've been doing all along and, and not being complacent and learning more. So I honestly don't, I, I feel like, it, you know, it, I, I, I've learned from mistakes as far as keeping overhead low. Like that's one of the biggest yeah. things that I've, I've had is like, I'll be like, okay, I can afford this credit card. You know, I can max this thing out and afford it. It's only $50 a month. What does that matter? And, you know, oh, I can afford this car. I just need to sell a couple more guide trips a, a, a month. And it's like, I've learned that that whatever I can do to kind of bring my overhead low is a really important thing. A few years ago, I was, it wasn't a great spot for me because I wasn't, I didn't feel the progress moving forward, which I think is, was, uh, was a really big issue for me because I've always been focused on, on, you know, my goals. I've been goal oriented. And when I don't see forward progress, it's kind of a depressing period of time. So now with, with, you know, my forward progress and kind of understanding like what my strengths and weaknesses are and kind of tripling down on my strengths, you know, including preparation, social media and everything else, it's, it makes it a lot easier. Yeah. Yeah. What's the lesson there for a guy that, that is, is, I mean, there's a lot of people out there that are right there where you were like no forward progress, doing what they think is the right thing, yeah. not making any progress towards the goal or that they can see on a day-to-day basis. Like what's, what's the lesson? How do you, how do you, how do you manage to continue to do the work when there's no progress forward that you're seeing but i think i think the only time you don't have progress is the one when you're spitballing and throwing things against the wall but they're not your strengths like if you don't understand what your strengths and weaknesses are that's one of the most dangerous things as a competitor or as a businessman or even at home you know it's like staying away from that one conversation that makes your your wife angry. That's very important, you know, <laughs> being being a little bit more cautious and tiptoe around that. But knowing your strengths and weaknesses is, is uh, I think, the most important thing that everybody should know for every walk of life. And it's the, the most important thing for me because I've tried to be somebody that I'm not, like tried to be that guy that is good on a certain a social media platform that I don't feel comfortable with or try to do that technique out there on the water that I don't feel comfortable with. And once you learn what your strengths are, 
and the things that you enjoy doing, you know, I'll, I'll use fishing as, as an example. You know, I like shallow water power fishing and I like to do that. And it seems like whenever I do that, I tend to do better. But when I try to force feed something else, I'm, I'm fighting against other guys that that's their strength. And then it's, it's a completely different deal. The results are just terrible. So I think in general, step back, look at like what your, your skill set is, what you enjoy doing the most, and then triple down on that because you have a market, whether you're, you're, it's a market, you're catering to the fish or you're catering to a social media following, or you're just catering to your family. You know, I think that, that how, whatever you do, that's your strengths can, can really build momentum. I think momentum's only stagnant when you're trying to, to do, to do, too many things. That's my, that's my thought on the whole subject. Yeah. Well, I like that. The building, the momentum is, is huge. And, um, you know, if, if you're just not seeing any forward progress whatsoever, because you're constantly working on your weaknesses, that can damage your, your confidence for sure, because you're just not doing well. But at the same time, you are doing well because you're working on your weaknesses and yeah, it's Mm -hmm. not fun and everything. So there's a real fine line and a real balance between like tripling down on your strengths, but also not just running from your weaknesses. Like you gotta, you gotta, at some point you gotta work on the weaknesses and make that weakness a strength, but that's the fine line. And, And being a tournament angler or being a professional fishing guide is a, it's just a metaphor on life. It's like, how much do you how much do you plan on doing that shallow water power fishing and staying away from the deep water structure yeah. or whatever, because there's going to be a tournament that you go to and that's not going to work. And are you comfortable making that change or not? And and you just compare that to, to anything in life. It's like, if you just focus on that one thing that you're, you're strong at, it's going to work a yeah. lot of times, but not every time. And then there's cycles too. Like yeah. if you're too good at one thing, when that cycle, like again, fishing, flipping has flipping and pitching is a shallow water tactic where you're fishing heavy cover. The old guys, Denny Brower, Tommy Biffle, those, those guys that were really well known for that, they dominated tournaments, you know, a decade and a half ago, but nowadays more versatility is needed. So you, you definitely have to keep up with the times, but that your strengths are always going to be there to keep you propped up to where you don't fall too too hard is kind of my perspective on it and learning to trust your gut i think is probably one of the the, the best things you know because your gut is going to tell you what's happening right now and what you need to kind of focus on like it, because everything that you hear all the information that you you like when i began i just absorbed every book every video everything i could nowadays i rarely do that because I, 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 I've learned to trust my instincts and, and I kind of go with the flow and it, it seems to work. I'm not saying that you need to stop learning, but you need to learn the things that are relevant to you. Like if you can't compete against somebody doing a certain thing and it's so far out of what your, your core strengths and what your, your gut instinct can effectively tell you to, uh, uh, how to approach it, then you should probably just, you know, avoid it and work on it on the uh, on the out time you mm-hmm. know like i do out on chickamauga is i'm constantly fishing out there and working on my deep water strengths and now honestly out on chickamauga i feel more comfortable out in deep water than i do in shallow water 
So it's weird. It, you have to have, you have to keep on learning. You have to keep on evolving. Yeah. There'll always be that time when all of a sudden, all of a sudden you're kind of like, well, I must have gotten better at this because right. <laughs> now I feel like given the choice, the choice was always to do the other thing. And now all of a sudden I'm thinking, well, based upon, you know, all these different conditions, yeah, I think going to my weakness is the best thing to do. Yeah. And that's when I think, you know, that that work has paid off and that you, you have turned a, turned a weakness into a strength, but that's such a fine line. Do you think that with, you know, when you were talking about that, it made me kind of think like this new format, like for all these years, you've had this, this five fish format. Mm -hmm. And of course you're talking about some of the best fishermen in the world. So you have to take that into account too, that of course these guys know how to catch small fish as well as they know how to catch big fish, but do they? I mean, like that's like, like they've made a living yeah. catching five big fish. Do you think this format is going to open the door to someone who, someone newer or someone that has different, different skill sets yeah. to really excel at this, at this new format? Like now all of a sudden catching 10 small fish is the same as catching one big fish where that guy couldn't even yeah. survive over in the other, in the old format. I think so because taking it, like looking at myself, like I said, I'm not a, the most dominant, like I'm not going to be the guy with the, the biggest bag on average, uh, you know, in tournaments, if you took the big bags of the, of the season, I'm probably going to be kind of, you know, middle of the pack, but I'm more consistent. So in, in myself in, in that kind of format, maybe, you know, would, would be pretty good because you're going to different fisheries that you don't necessarily know. You have very little information. You're just kind of going with it. And then other guys that have kind of, you know, beat it into their brain that they need to catch the five biggest, it may be a struggle for them. So I think it, you're going to see a lot of different mix up as far as the the standings and like who you see kind of dominate. But really, again, like you said, these are, you know, great professional anglers that have been around a long time. So I think that they, they can adjust to that format pretty pretty good i think yeah that, i think it'll you know over in in two years it's not going to be an issue but i yeah. think maybe on the first year of this big turnover you might see some new faces that's yeah. what i would think and maybe maybe i don't know and that's the exciting thing about flw right now is the fact that we've got a lot of anglers that you know in this may be a, a something that people criticize a little bit but there's a lot of anglers that not a lot of people have heard of but they're going to hear of them. You know, mm -hmm. they're going to hear of a lot of those guys that are fishing the tour right now because they are great anglers. I've always said it, that, that the best tournament angler in the world may not be the best angler in the world. And, and so it, I, I really believe that, that, that tournament angling is so different than just traditional well, fishing. Well, any, anytime you put any, any parameters around yeah. it, I mean, you can say the best charter guide in the world is not the best tournament fisherman in exactly, the world. Exactly, yeah. And it, it's v absolutely, I mean, yeah. there, there are guys that, that have uh, clientels and, and they're booked for life yeah. because they're fun to be with and they always show you a good time. You always catch some fish. And if you don't, you're still going to have a great time. And it's just knows lots of jokes and <clears throat> just a fun person to be around. Yeah. Very, very entertaining. A person like that's going to be booked for life. A person like that may not place in the top 65 yeah. of the tournament, but it's a totally different thing. 
the guy mm-hmm. that won the tournament may have a horrible disposition and yeah. nobody wants to be around him. And that's why he's a tournament fisherman because yeah. <laughs> he can spend all day by himself. And yeah. if he's a, you know, a charter guide, that's where he's going to end up too. So he yeah. might be the worst charter guide ever, the best tournament fisherman yeah. ever, the best charter guide ever, the worst tournament fisherman. Because all this guy wants to do is talk. He's going over to the other boats. Hey, right. what's going on? <laughs> <laughs> Nobody wants to talk to yeah. him. But I think anytime you put the put put any sort of parameter around the fishing is that even if it's live bait versus artificial or offshore versus inshore or fly fishing versus, mm-hmm. you know, spin or whatever, you're going to see that some people are, are way better than, than others at those little things. Yeah. Kind of going back to, you know, the, you know, the new format and, and now that we have three tours, you know, I think they all have their, their strengths and weaknesses. And I think that FLW is really exciting because it has been more of a grassroots program, you know, and, and I'm excited to see some of the, the talent that they're bringing to the, mm-hmm. to the forefront now. And they've got great, media platforms too so they're they're all i think this competition that has happened in the uh in the industry this shake-up is going to improve all the all three platforms yeah competition always always helps really good you you usually almost always helps but one of the things like correct me if i'm wrong because i really don't know what i'm talking about but it seems like major league fishing has been around for a while this is in the first year Mm -hmm. but the big difference is is that you like at some point you were able to fish. I mean, there were people like Ish Monroe was fishing BASS and FLW. Yeah, is that yeah. correct? And there were a couple of other pros and it was, it was a major deal. Like you had to have several different rigs, yeah, you know, yeah. two rigs and you'd fly back and forth between the two and jump in and fish this tournament and then mm-hmm. go back over to the other coast and get back on the other deal. And there were a few people that were able to pull that off. But from my understanding, a lot of these tournaments were scheduled on the same weekends. I mean, there's yeah. only, there's 52 weeks in the there's year, all, so there's only you're, so you're much. Have and then some. holidays, you know, and most of the time they don't do winter, right. you know, fall and winter. So is that one of the things that made this year the year that you had to, like, choose? Oh, I had, I saw a winnable opportunity with this, this whole shakeup, because obviously FLW lost some some anglers, and Bass lost a tremendous amount of anglers from, from their platform that went over to MLF. And so I saw an opportunity, you know, as a a young up and comer, you know, in the sport to this, this is the year that I need to take the reins and, and go after it and just go after it with everything I've got. Hmm. And that's why I spent a month and a half, you know, searching for sponsor backing to be able to pay for it. So for me, I think that this whole shakeup really opened a door for me and I think that it's the same thing for a lot of people in F- FLW and over in Bass too. Mm-hmm. What uh, when you're when you're going to one of these tournaments? How much? How far in advance do you leave for that particular tournament? I'm usually leaving on either Thursday or Friday, and possibly Saturday, depending on. I'm traveling with uh, two FLW pros, Braxton Setzer and and uh, Rob Jordan, and whenever one of us you know, books the house for, you know, obviously you want to get there as early as possible. So you have a nice leisurely preparation time, get to know the area, know where all the amenities are and everything. But there are, there are rules as oh, far yeah. as like, what, what, what is the, what, the what's practice the, period? Yeah. So the practice period starts on the Sunday prior to the tournament, which starts on Thursday and you've got three days, Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, and then Wednesday is an off day, which I absolutely love. Mm-hmm. <laughs> having so, an off day so you awesome. can get to the location early set up your tackle get everything yeah. ready but 
You can't be on the water. You, you can't, can't be on the water and you can't get information. Yeah. And that's a funny thing because you pull up in your wrap truck oh, dude, to get some gas. Oh, dude, everybody wants to throw you, uh, you know, information. Yeah. Everybody. How do you deal with that? I have to preemptively let them know. Like, I was la, at, la, 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 at, la. Yeah, at, at Rayburn. <laughs> I was getting ready for the final day. I was at a, a Dollar General just grabbing some supplies. And the lady in there was super nice. She was a local. She was just interested in what was going on. And she started like trying to show me pictures on her phone, you know, and I, I, assuming that there's a bait in the mouth of the fish, I don't want that information. So I had to tell her, you know, Hey, you know, I, I can't get any information at this period of time. So, and so they understand that. And some people take offense to that, but it's, it's nothing, you know, against them. It's just, you have to preemptively do that because we do take polygraphs, you know? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, so you but you can get there early and so you're you're traveling with like two other people mm-hmm. and then somebody's going to take charge of of booking some place and are you looking to yeah. be on the water or are you looking just for a safe place to keep all your gear or Yeah. What? At this next place we're staying with a good buddy of mine <clears throat> um uh, Ted Sullivan. He lives on Toho, which is not something that's easy to find. There's not a whole lot of lakes that live you know, right on the water. So we're going to get down there. I'm going to get down there probably Friday night and just kind of slowly get everything together. You know, we're probably going to have a cookout, you know, fry some halibut from Alaska, which (laughs) keep on, you know, haven't brought you some, I should have brought some today. I I feel bad now, but uh, yeah, we're going to do that prior and, and uh, just kind of leisurely get everything because you don't want to rush anything. Right. I've learned that, you know, I always seem to do that. I call it future miles. Whenever I have a tight schedule, it's future Miles' problem. <laughs> and then I have to deal with it. <laughs> and then, so where did you, where did you uh, find your travel partners? Rob Jordan's part of the Z-Man team, okay. which they've been a great... Z-Man's been an awesome partner of ours on the show and me personally, um, both Joey and I personally, outside the show. And so, um, you know, and it's just a great group of guys and he's one of the pro staff. And so I, I gave him a call and, you know, when I found out I was going to fish the tour. That's cool. Yeah. And so even with those people, the people that you're that you're traveling with and the, and other pros are you, you can't talk amongst yourselves you you can you can you can only uh talk with competitors that are fishing the tournament so for instance if you fish the th- day 3 or day 4 and a pro has been cut out for the, for those final days or whatever day it is you can't talk with them so if they're going to compete in the 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 next day of competition you can you can talk with them but i generally don't tend to talk too much you know we talk about generals but we i think all of us kind of respect our own space and we'll we'll throw each other a bone when it comes around but you know it's it, it generally the guys that i stay with we just don't talk that much about specifics mm-hmm. and are you guys traveling down there together like in a convoy or you just show up no we just show up Mm-hmm. Yeah, every man for himself out there on the road <laughs> <laughs> that's a lot of miles it's it is a lot of miles on the road i guess that's why they called me miles yeah <laughs> that's right because you're going to put on a lot of miles what do you do listen to books or podcasts or what do you listen to of course i listen to podcasts we've talked about it before i listen to the, the joe rogan po- podcast a lot i've listened to to of course some of yours and listen to some fishing podcasts i've kind of got out of the fishing podcast a little bit sometimes i I listen to uh uh, bass talk live which is one of my favorites ike live i still listen to to those but 
it's it's also a time for me to kind of get my news and take yeah know, and understand what's going on in the world because i don't do that at home ever mm-hmm. i'm on a news blackout dude it's it's actually a good thing it's good to talk to hear you know platforms like where you have long form conversations like mm-hmm. we're having right here because you can actually talk about subjects you know in depth but as far as news goes i can't handle it i've been on a news blackout for about six years good i mean i just i don't watch the news and i don't read the newspaper i mean i just don't i find out about it you know because i mean you know the news cycle is so fast that while i'm not getting it on twitter every single second yeah within couple of hours somebody's telling me about something of of substance like i just don't have to subject myself to that and i don't know most of the stuff that i miss it's not even worth worrying about anyway but man it makes me feel a lot better to be on a news blackout yeah amen to that (laughs) (laughs) i mean i i try to stay out of the news as much as possible because it's just a it's just a crazy mess (laughs) yeah well some of the news that i saw that made me think of you right away were the fires in in mm-hmm. California, and you've got a, a serious connection to that. Yeah, what was that like for you? So November eighth, it was just a regular day in Tennessee. You know, we're just hanging out, and around eleven o'clock, I had talked to my mom earlier that day, and then at eleven, she calls and says that our house is on fire, the house that I grew up in that she still owned, and she was in Georgia at the time. She's staying with my brother, and so. I'm like, okay, do you have insurance? You know, that's like the first mm-hmm. thing that I, I thought of was, you know, if she, she had the insurance that they could cover it, she said she did. So that was kind of, I was like, okay, well, I didn't think that anything of it other than the fact that the house was on fire, I thought it was maybe an electrical issue or something, you know, it was localized to our house. But then I started seeing some Facebook posts that I didn't, I kind of breezed over at first. Then I started seeing some real serious posts of my friends doing Facebook lives or, you know, doing some kind of kind of video or photo post of them surrounded by flame, looking like it's completely pitch black out except for the flames all around them. And then I realized what was going on. And that was about 1130 in the morning over there or over in Tennessee. But over there, you know, it was it was, you know, it just, people were just waking up two flames in their yard. Mm. And so that fire, they called it the campfire and it was moving at a rate of 80 football fields per minute. Wow. And I mean, you just think about that kind of, that kind of speed. It, it breezed through so quick that, I mean, you look at the pictures, you still see green foliage because anything that was high enough, it was blowing so hard, you know, laterally that it, that it just destroyed everything on the ground wow. and just breezed through at such a tremendous, you know, rate and, uh, and just the heat. I mean, I had to call my, some of my best friends over there and see if they're okay. A lot of them I couldn't get through to cause a lot of the towers had been destroyed, but some of them I, you know, talked to everybody that I talked to that was in town that wasn't in the next town over for work was in, still in the fire. Wow. Yeah, it was, it was, that was paradise, right? Yeah, paradise, California. Yeah, because yeah, they were they were saying that the name when I did uh, hear about this news, and I finally you know break out of my news blackout to yeah, say yeah. you know what is going on in California, and the one story that I did see 
was talking about paradise. And I was like, why does that sound so familiar? <laughs> and then it wasn't long after that that I talked to you and you were like, yeah, well, that's, remember, that's where I grew up. Yeah. And I just, it's it's so weird when you see something like that, you know, catastrophic damage somewhere, yeah. and then you make a personal connection to that. Like, wow, that's where Miles grew up. Yeah. That's bizarre for for me. And then for you, it's way beyond bizarre. It's like, yeah. those are your friends and your family and your house and your belongings and everything like that is going on in there. We deal with a lot of hurricanes and stuff, but that fire, I mean, 80 football fields a minute, that's yeah faster than you can run oh way faster more, faster than you could drive in the traffic it it was the hardest the hardest part about the whole thing was just being away from it not being there you feel so helpless you just want to help your the community that you grew up around and you just want to be there you feel like there's this feeling of of like fomo fear fear of m- missing out mm-hmm. but it's not like fear of like the excitement of it, but fear of not being there for the people that you, you care about. Right. And, and that was the hard part, not, not being able to, to, to be there for people. And so we really wanted to go over there. Katie and I both grew up there. So Katie, that's where Katie and I met was in high school, paradise high school. And so it was for both of us, it was a very hard time just seeing it from afar and not being able to be there to comfort our friends. And there was a point where we were just going to fly over while the chaos was still happening. But then we realized, you know, this is just going to eat up resources and we're not needed. Like there's nothing we can mm-hmm. do for them that we can't do from here. So we did open a GoFundMe page because there was, I mean, there, I think it was like 24,000 people were displaced or it, it was it least 18,000 homes or 18,000 families that were displaced and something like that. And it was, it's 15,000 and change homes were destroyed Hmm. in a matter of how many people lived there. Do you think before the total, total, I think there was 30,000. So So 50% of the houses done. Oh no. As far as houses, 90% of the houses are gone. 90% of the houses. Yeah. Wow. Around there. The majority, the, businesses seem to do better because they have a lot more space in between the trees Mm. and things like that. Like parking lots kind of were were good buffer zones, but it was, it was so crazy how unpredictable because we got to go there finally during around uh, new year's and it was almost, it was therapeutic being there. Number one, it was harder for me being over here and, and thinking about it. But when we went over there, it was a huge relief for all of us, I think, because we got to see it and people adjusting to it and you got to see the reality of it which is complete destruction but at the same time you're seeing people kind of surviving you know yeah. and that's kind of comforting but when we went there and saw the destruction like I've never seen anything like it I've never seen anything like it because we went there and you would see a building that was perfectly fine and then right next to it a building that didn't even look like hmm. it existed. Yeah. Wow. The vast majority of the of the town was completely gone, but those businesses were the ones that kind of remained a little bit. What happens with the 90% destruction? So what happens to the 10% that are remaining, that one building that's sitting there next to that's, total destruction? That's what I said. Like, that was one of the things I, I was just, Katie and I would talk, I'd be like, I feel bad for the people that didn't lose their homes too. Well, because... 
now the, now the whole town is is wrecked property values that that gray area that people fall in with with uh with insurance mm-hmm. so i know our neighbor it's funny that we're talking about the people that that did did their houses did survive our neighbors survived hmm. next to our our mom's place and he's going to live there he he's 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 all gung ho about you know staying but I'm not sure how it's going to work. I actually have one friend out of all my friends that their house actually survived and it was out on the outskirts of the town up the mountain. So I'm not sure exactly what's going to happen with, with them, but it's to me, hopefully it all works out in their favor in, in some way, because I would assume that for at least the next 10 years or so property values are going to be really, really uh, bad probably locked up or, uh, you know, I don't understand the economics about it enough to be an expert at it. But it seems to me that seeing is that all the toxicity levels in the area, because you're talking about a lot of homes that were made of asbestos and lead paint and all these mm. different toxic things. That's one of the main things is we had to wear like major respirators and, and full wow. painter's suits. You don't and, think about that. Yeah, oh yeah. Our or house was made of asbestos, yeah. <laughs> you know, from what I understand. And so it's a lot of houses that were made back in the sixties and seventies that were destroyed. I mean, the, the air quality in Northern California was the worst in the world during that period of time. Yeah. Wow. So yeah, that's, that's tough. I mean, we, over the last few years and even back in the, in the nineties, there were so many hurricanes that came through Florida that it was just, it's just one after another. If it didn't hit the keys, it hit somewhere else. And you just, it was just a constant part of, of life. But the best thing, as you said, was that after one of these disasters, you would see the community come together like, mm-hmm. like no other time ever. Yeah. And I mean, people would, would do so much for one another and it was just amazing to see. But unfortunately, sometimes you have to go through some really bad things in order to, to see that. Yeah. That, that's a good point because that's how I kind of feel about it. I'm kind of a, optim you know an optimist when it comes to that kind of stuff because i see under the the greatest struggles and the biggest disasters that it can be some of the best years of people's lives and that that may be an it may seem insensitive uh, to say that but i think that people are going to look back and see how their community came together and people like reacted so well as a whole to to those things that that people's true colors kind of you know, showed. And I think that as much as it was so destructive and deadly because, you know, almost 90 people died in the fire. It happened so fast that I I think that by and large, it's going to, the community of paradise is going to be a very strong, closely knit community because of it. Yeah. Um, Which is hopeful to me. There's obviously still a lot that there's a lot of struggle ahead. I just talked to my, my friend Kenny on the phone yesterday and he's just like, you know, I asked him how he's doing. He's just like, just, you know, he's the one that his house is still standing. And he's just like, man, we're just trying to learn a new norm, you mm. know, as normal as it can be, you know, because every day he has to drive through the town that doesn't look at all like it used to. Wow. Nothing there. So it's, uh, it's definitely been disastrous, but I think that, that those type of events can't do have a, a an upside to it as yeah. far as yeah well it's certainly I've, I've seen the upside many times with hurricanes yeah. and and you're right it does bind the community like nothing else so 
On a lighter note, yeah, <laughs> right. <laughs> on a lighter note, you've got so many good things happening for you in your life outside of the fires of California. You've got, you know, you're about to buy a house. You got the FLW tour going on. Sweetwater's proceeding on. What's next in your in your mind? What what uh, what's next for you? Keep on keep on learning and keep on uh, you know getting better at the things I'm I'm not so great at. <laughs> you know, and also the things that I'm, I'm pretty good at. Yeah. Both on and off the water. Yeah. On and off the water and just keep on, uh, evolving as a person, man. I think that's what it's all about. And so I'm, I'm really excited. I, I, I'm, I want to do some more, I'm definitely doing a lot more video content for, for the social media side and really enjoying doing that. So it's a really exciting period of time. I'm really happy with the direction things are kind of trending for me and, and I uh, just don't want to rest on my laurels, man. I want to keep on going full bore. That's awesome. So where where can people see all of the new stuff that you're producing? So number one, uh, you know, of course, you can watch Sweetwater. Uh, we've got three different platforms, I believe, and you can correct me. You're a little bit more in tune with the pulse of where we're being shown. But we're we're on NBC Sports, Sportsman's Channel, and then also Waypoint TV, which is uh, outstanding. You know, anybody can watch it there and all our episodes. And then, uh, and then, yeah, Sweetwater Fishing TV. And then my own platforms, I'm really trying to, trying to push my, my uh, YouTube quite a bit. I'm putting a lot of energy into that. And, and uh, Facebook and Instagram are my other two that I really concentrate on. What so, are your handles? Um, Sonar Fishing on, on uh, Instagram and, and, and YouTube. And then Facebook, my professional page is Miles Sonar Virgo. Okay, Sonar, because you are the master of the sonar. And son of radar. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, son of radar. That's right. That's exactly right. And then you then you have sonar because you do actually know your way around depth finder pretty well. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, I think everybody will will go and, and check you out and I really appreciate you stopping by because uh, it's it's cool to hear this whole bass world because it's a little it's it's a little different. I mean, yeah. really for an outsider, I mean you see these guys just showing up at these tournaments and everything like that, but I know that there's way more that goes into it. Oh yeah. There's all the travel and the balancing of the family life and the and the balancing of the budget and it's expensive and stressful at times, I'm sure, but you seem to be you seem to be handling it pretty well. And uh, that first tournament went well. I We're, love I love the process. Yeah. That's what it's all about. That's it. That's it. All right, Miles. Well, good luck to you, and we'll be watching, and hopefully this time you're going to make it to the final day. Thanks, Tom. Really good to be here. Yeah, man. See you, Miles. Thanks. Through the Blackwater bayous and in the dark Louisiana night floats a duck camp, alive with the sounds of swamp pop and the smells of Cajun cooking. Mississippi Delta in Venice to the Cajun prairies of the Southwest. Me and the Duck Camp Dinners crew will be hunting and eating it all. This is Duck Camp Dinner. Join me, Chef Jean-Paul Bourgeois, and the whole crew every Monday at 8 p.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV. Don't miss Mondays with Into the Blue, brought to you by Academy Sports and Outdoors. Every Monday night from 7 to 10 p.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV, the destination for outdoor entertainment.